Welcome to Radio ATF, Sounds of Solidarity. I'm Dwayne Norris, Vice President of Membership and Involvement here at Albuquerque Teachers Federation, and I'm going to be co-hosting this with our ATF President, Dr. Ellen Bernstein. Ellen, how you doing? Hello, Dwayne. I'm doing great. It's a beautiful pre-spring day out there with all the attending pollen, and you can tell that in my voice. Well, we're very fortunate today on our inaugural episode, AFT New Mexico President Whitney Holland is going to join us along with AFT State Affiliate Political Organizer John Dirk. They're up in Santa Fe lobbying for us right now, and they've got the lowdown on what's going on in the legislature right now. Plus, I think we're going to talk just the two of us, Dwayne, about a couple of bills that are a little controversial. One of them is increasing instructional hours to 1140 for elementary through high school. And then another one is a bill to change the graduation requirements for future high school graduates. All that and more on Radio ATF today. All right, before we get into uh, our conversation with Whitney and John, I think one of the main things that's on uh, educators' minds right now is what the coming school year is going to look like. APS hasn't been able to put out a calendar yet because they're waiting for the legislative session to end and see what we're dealing with. Ellen, what what kind of concerns have you been hearing from members about possible extended school year and extended school day? You know, Dwayne, to be honest, I think all of us here in the leadership and the staff haven't been hearing a whole lot from the members, except for they want to know what is their school year going to look like next year. I think for the most part, what I'm hearing from our members is they know that the minimum instructional hours by law are going to be changed to 1,140. That's going to add time to the school year and the school day. But what they don't know is what does that mean to them and their families? Because just, you know, we all know that we may be teachers, but we may also be parents. And we may also need to get our kids to daycare and pick them up from school. And we want to make sure that we can manage our family around the new mandate that's coming down from Santa Fe. So what I've heard from APS so far is that they're working really hard to figure out how much revenue they're going to receive. What does that look like in terms of a school calendar? And will there also be a need and an option to extend the school day? So let me just break that down a little more for you. I think APS is going to try hard to contain the school year between the beginning of August and the end of May. I'm not sure if they're going to be successful. It kind of depends on what the legislation looks like. And right now, in both bills, 130 and 194, there's an incentive for school districts to have more than 180 kid days of instruction. So if APS increases the number of instructional days for kids, how do we fit the time for adults in there and still contain it between August and May? 
And then the question is, to meet the mandate of instructional time, will we have a little bit more time on each day? And then the big question is, can we work for a professional day for all educators so that we have time to learn, plan, prepare, work for each other, sorry, work with each other. And that's what we did in the eight-hour pilot. And it's really a positive thing for all the people who are participating. But we don't know if we'll have enough funding for anything like that. I know one of the concerns that I've heard from people is, you know, any extension of the duty days or hours in the day. Will we be getting paid our uh, hourly salary or how will that be decided? And also, you know, along with that, will there be more sick leave? Will there be more personal leave? Well, that's a great question. Those are things that we're going to have to negotiate in terms of the sick leave and the professional leave that we have, including the prep time that we have, especially at elementary and mid-school where it's just really minimal. What I can say as a guarantee is there will be no extension of the work day or the work year without your hourly compensation. So anybody that's worried that the legislature is trying to pull a fast one on us and have us work more time without more compensation, that's not going to happen. And I think what everybody needs to understand is right now there's an average of 5% as a raise in there on everybody's base salary. And then there will be more paid time if the law to increase the instructional hours passes. So there will be more than 5% that people can look at for next year, but that will come as a raise and a time burden both. Some members have expressed concerns that this is getting done to us, not with us, and that maybe ATF isn't taking a hard enough stance against this. Um, Would you want to address that? You know, it's interesting, Dwayne. We've been talking about this coming down from Santa Fe, well, really for years. We've barely avoided a mandate up until now. And it's really clear for some months that this is going to be mandated. I think the debate that we had with our Fed reps and our members is if you object to this, how does that play out, especially How does that play out when it gets twisted by our enemies? Is it going to be a problem for us if we start organizing against added instructional time for students? Now, I think we could switch that narrative because obviously it's a very complex idea and members bring up issues like what about the root causes? What about staffing, which would be great to have more staffing? And these are all legitimate conversations But I also want to bring up the point that we have a school board race coming next November, and we have clear in this district issues with how some school members view our work and view us as a union and view the value of our professionalism. And I think we have to think very carefully as members of a union, how we want to act in solidarity and against or for what? Well, I think having dealt with both the uh, extended school year and the beginning of talking about raises segues us into our next section, which is our discussion with uh, AFT New Mexico President Whitney Holland and AFT SAPO John Dirch.
Well, as we're recording this today, we're a little over two-thirds of the way through the 60-day session. A lot of bills are getting some traction over there. We've had some things tabled. And Ellen and I wanted to bring on our AFT New Mexico State President, Whitney Holland, to come and talk about uh, what they're witnessing up in Santa Fe, because she and the state affiliate political officer, John Dirch, are both in Santa Fe for the entire session. They're up there lobbying on our behalf. Welcome, Whitney. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Is John on again yet? I am. I'm here. All right. Um, So one of the things that Ellen and Ellen, feel free to jump in here anytime you want to, that Ellen and I have been writing about uh, and the staff on the ATF Union News is that there are some big game changers that are in the legislature this year. Some of the things that we've identified and talked about at length are the 1,140 hours, or as we'd like to call it, 1140. Healthcare premiums, the governor has signaled that she would like to pay 100% of educators' healthcare. We know that there are a couple of bills competing on that topic. High school graduation requirements, which has got a lot of traction right now. A little bit about raises as they stand in our budget. And finally, we really feel that uh, school funding in general, and especially funding the state equalization guarantee, the SEG, could be a real game changer. And I'm kind of interested in you guys' uh, thoughts on those. So I would really like to start the conversation with helping everybody understand where did this momentum around increasing the instructional hours in state law come from? What's going on with it now? And what do we anticipate happening by the end of the session? And I think insights from Whitney and John are really important here. So do one of you want to go ahead and give some background around increasing instructional hours and and how it's been building for some years and how we got here today? I can take a stab at that from at least the historical perspective. Um, I think this year's effort to extend the school year to 1140 instructional hours really started about four to five years ago under then Secretary of Public Education Karen Trujillo. And this, I think it's helpful to view through the lens of the Martinez-Yazi lawsuit. And so we know that first district court judge ruled that we weren't providing an appropriate and equitable education across all student population groups. And that's the very Cliff Notes version of of that ruling. But since that ruling, the, the legislature and the various governors who have existed under that have attempted to kind of solve that problem. And one of the approaches to that has been to extend the school year. So I think four to five years ago, we saw much larger investments into K3+, plus, K5+, plus extended learning time efforts. And in those first years, those resources were not adopted perhaps as quickly as legislators thought they ought to be or governors thought they ought to be. And so... Every year since then, there's been a different approach to extending the school year, whether it's extended learning or extended learning through days or extended learning through hours. And I think that's been the natural progression to the 1140 approach that we see this legislative session. Yeah. And I remember as a local leader, it had to have been 2018, maybe even a little bit sooner where it was, it trickled down to the local level. And it was a hard conversation to have with my superintendent and my school board because they viewed it through that lens, like John said, of this is going to help vulnerable populations. 
And I was viewing it through the lens of this is not what at the time, what our teachers, what our educators, what our families wanted. And so we worked together to do a survey and the results were overwhelming at that point. The model at that point was the K3 plus where it was going to be 20 or 25 extra days. And it was just not what our community wanted. And so that was hard because it put the superintendent in a position where he then had to go back to the PED and justify why we weren't doing it and what other kinds of things we would do instead. And then over the course, so like COVID, it wasn't as much of an issue because we had so much else spinning. Then last year, kind of fast forward a little bit, last year, the extended learning time was still a huge topic of discussion, but it was kind of done in an interesting way where it was made, it was a policy almost through the budget and not through the actual policy making process. And I am a devout rule follower. So when you don't follow the, pro- the policies and the processes in place, like that is not how this works. And so we worked with a lot of our allies and a lot of the Albuquerque-based legislators to make sure that if this was going to happen, it was going to happen in a way that was following the process where stakeholders had input. And most importantly, where there was some local flexibility built in. Because mandating something that is a one-size-fits-all model, whether it's curriculum or pedagogy or extended learning time, is not what this unit advocates for. And so we just wanted to make sure whatever the final version of this thing is, it truly embraces the uniqueness of our communities and our school districts. I agree with what John and Whitney have both said about the history. And that's how we got to what they're doing this year, which is putting it into law and using legislative changes to make the extended learning time standardized, basically statewide, so that instead of 990 hours of instructional time at elementary school as a minimum and 1080 in high school as a minimum, what they're mandating through law is that all school districts will have a minimum of 1,140 instructional hours for all students at all levels. But what's going on now is what we consider instructional time is different between House Bill 130 and House Bill 194. And I think at this point in the session, House Bill 130 is the one that has legs and the one that we're probably going to see either in the form it's in now or with some amendments as it goes through the process. And the big difference is that in 130, there are 60 hours that can be considered instructional that really support all of us as practitioners to get together, learn together, collaborate together, and plan. And I think that's an important part of House Bill 130. I think that's the one that's going to end up at the end of the session being law. Whitney, John, what do you think? I tend to agree with you that 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 is the the version of this bill that folks are coalescing around. It wasn't long ago in the session that there was a hearing around House Bill 130 in the Judiciary Committee, and it, it kind of coincided with the School Boards Association Summit, and there was a significant portion of superintendents present that day as a function of the School Boards Summit. And, you know, everybody in that hearing said, if this is the path forward, this is the vehicle to navigate that path because it did and does, in my opinion, provide the greatest level of local flexibility for implementing additional hours for districts that may require them to get to that 1140 minimum. 
And what I really appreciated about the way in which House Bill 130 was crafted is it acknowledges that when we have time together as adults to work on our lessons and work on our pedagogy together, then we do a much better job with our students. You can't separate adult time and student time as if one is more important than the other. We have to have both. And so that philosophy is one that I can get behind. And that's why I, as the president of ATF, have been supporting 130. Also, Ellen, I want to piggyback on that. I don't think there's a single teacher or other educator who's not doing some sort of paperwork or some sort of prep on their own time right now. And so the emphasis on adult time in HB 130, I think could really be, as we've been calling it, a game changer for folks to get paid for the work that they're already doing. Well, and that leads us to the budget and how much we have in the budget to support other local initiatives like what we have as a pilot, which is the eight-hour day, where there's time for collaboration, there's time for committee work, there's time for what we call professional work to contact parents to grade papers. There's time for planning and preparation and collaboration. And that's what we need in our school day. And that's something I think we need to work towards as we get funding from Santa Fe so that we can be supported in the complex work that we all do to support the learning of students. So I think the other thing that's going on is about healthcare premiums. And I think Whitney and John, you both have insights about what happened to the governor's goal of providing up to $10,000 for all of us in what we personally pay for our health care premiums in public education. What happened to that bill? So that's a really good question. And I think a really hot button issue right now. So a little bit of history here. There was a moment in October, and I remember the exact day when we had Evelyn de Jesus, who's the vice president of AFT at the national level, and Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham in our union hall for this get out the vote rally. And the governor had committed to this promise about the healthcare. And John and I kind of looked at each other and went, oh my gosh, like that the price tag is going to be huge. And we do this work full time. So we understand, we live it, the nuances of getting something that size into the budget at the reoccurring level and the path it kind of had ahead. And so we tried to be as realistic and optimistic as possible navigating that and having these conversations. And so what came of that, that moment from October to now is House Bill 102. And what House Bill 102 does, what you kind of alluded to, is it pays for the first $10,000 of an educator and their family's premiums, which is life-changing. It's a huge piece of legislation that directly impacts our members. And for K-12 and a lot of our higher ed members too. But with that comes a price tag that's over $100 million. And so to have that in the budget every single year is a really large lift. And we knew that going in. So I just want to set the tone that we were as realistic as possible with hope like this would impact me too, personally. So like this would be life changing and it's hard. So I'm going to let John kind of fill in the other details about how we got here. I, I think, um, and I want to add one more thing to what to what Whitney shared. I think House Bill 102 is a great illustration of the limits of any one branch of the government's power. I think that what the governor was advocating was, as as Dwayne kind of set up this conversation, it was a game changer for a lot of people. It definitely would have 
impacts on both recruitment and retention. And it really would have been essentially a, a form of a pay raise for many of our educators in the field. But it didn't get legs um, at all. And I think as as Whitney and I have sort of answered different questions that that our members have asked and even members of, of other unions, they sort of said, well, this is what the governor put in her budget. What do you mean that it, she doesn't just get her way? And, you know, I, I don't fault the governor for for attempting to do this because I think the, the values were right, the goal was right, the recognition of the work that educators do was right but there are limits <laughs> and the legislature, you know, obviously has to weigh all of the various factors. So there were two initial pieces of legislation and potentially a third that were really going to try to address healthcare and they all took different approaches. So there was one bill, uh, House Bill 1 or 2, which Whitney outlined what it would do and what it would cost. There was another bill uh, House Bill 36, and both House Bill 36 and 102 were, were carried by Representative Ray Lara, who is a educator in the Gadsden School District. House Bill 36 would have just gone across the board 80-20 coverage for health care. And that was one of the approaches that our, our friends at NEA New Mexico have long advocated for. And there was potentially a third bill that we were kind of putting into the mix that would have adjusted the the current state statute, which exists on sort of a step basis of, of coverage based on your salary. When the governor announced her plans for House Bill 102, which is the, the coverage for the first 10K, we did not pursue our graduated step plan because, as Whitney mentioned, we felt strongly that we needed to be strong supporters of House Bill 102 and it would you know we should advocate for the most possible for our members and that also kind of blunted any trajectory of House Bill 36 which was which was less than what the governor's bill was proposing so both our sort of step approach and the 80-20 approach were kind of set aside in favor of 102. I think one of the conversations that I've been having with teachers is the issue of consistent revenue. Our revenue is huge right now because of our reliance on oil and gas. And so we can dream big like the governor did in terms of the health care premiums. What I always worry about is consistent revenue sources so that we can maintain these efforts. And I had a huge fear that we would end up some years down the road when we didn't have the revenue to maintain this, that it would become an issue between maintaining health care premiums and seeing compensation increases. And so I'm not surprised that the legislature and the finance committees looked at it differently in terms of can we do this and can we sustain this? When you were up there listening to the debates, is that part of what the conversation was? It, it absolutely was. And it was less about the sustainability and more about will this cause a race between other public employees to get this level of coverage. And surprisingly, when House Bill 102 was going through various committees, we heard sort of strong arguments from some 
conservative members of the legislature saying, well, if we do this for educators, why shouldn't we do this for other public employees? And they may not admit that they were advocating for universal coverage, but that's essentially what they were doing. So I think it was less about sustainability, although that was a factor, and more about does this create a race to to get this level of funding across all sectors of public workers? And the challenge was that legislators rightfully so say we want to be equitable, we want to be fair, we want to do the right thing. So they couldn't wrap their heads around providing this level of coverage for just one segment. But at the same time, that thought process doesn't recognize that other public employees have had higher levels of insurance coverage than educators for decades. And so there's the rub, right? It is equitable what they're proposing now and fair, but it's not, you know, historically equitable. You know, we were talking at lunch yesterday about if there is legislation that changes the rule that the employer pay 60% and the employee pay 40%, we lift those caps, then we can negotiate as a local union with our district for higher levels of coverage. If we have the money coming from Santa Fe, which is always the problem, I think, lately, our funding for the state equalization guarantee known as the SEG for local priorities at the local level has really been almost non-existent in my opinion. And I think one of the things we need to work for in the future is more flexible funding for districts so we can put money into our employees through the negotiating process with discretionary money at the district level. And I'm hopeful that we can do that in the future. Do you have any insights into that? I definitely think that that's a that that's a goal and it, as insurance coverage inches closer to that statutory based cap we are finding greater support for not only striking that cap but the thought that allowing a local district to prioritize healthcare coverage as a way to attract and retain educators should be a local decision. So I think that's the eventual goal in the absence of a bill like 102 that would largely cover most healthcare costs, having that local ability to pursue this as a union or pursue this as a union in collaboration with a district to to really highlight attracting and keeping good educators, I think that's going to be a more real conversation going forward. No, I completely agree. And I think at a minimum, we are walking away from this issue with a lot of open dialogue. So we are at least move, like inching the needle bit by bit. And it's on people's radar. People are talking about it. Just the idea that they're having these conversations in committees about like, well, what if, why stop at educators? Why not do all these other pockets of workers is to me progress. I agree. Yeah. And I, and you know, from the educators that I talk to quite frequently, I can tell you that any movement on this is going to help with uh, folks, families and their budgets in their homes, because every year we see, you know, the slight increase of healthcare premiums going up and up. Uh, if it's okay, let's segue into high school graduation requirements. House Bill 126 carried by ATF member Atrisco Heritage Academy Social Studies teacher, House Education Committee Chair Andres Romero. Guy wears many, many hats. How's that looking right now? I know that it got a little bump this week as well as far as a bump in support. 
Yeah, passed through Senate education yesterday. It had a couple amendments on the floor, which I think were good amendments on the floor of the House, which basically said districts have to offer Algebra 2, but they don't have to make it a graduation requirement that you pass it. And then districts have to make sure in economics that there is financial literacy embedded in that class. So that explained what people do when they teach econ a little bit more and made it more explicit, but I can see this passing through as a huge change this year. And I also talked with representatives of of the LESE and the PED about how are we going to manage this change. The bill is really intended to let students pick a path through high school that is based on their interests. And it also is intended to give more flexibility for electives and for more CTE. But we have a lot of questions from high school teachers about how this is going to work considering our licensure issues. And what I was reassured about by both the LESE and the PED is that they're going to work on this over the next year to make sure that they have pathways for the licensure issues, that they have ways for people to work together to give high school students more flexibility and choice. And the narrative around the bill, and I agree with this because we started this conversation with Representative Romero a couple years ago, and that is the more choice high school students have, the more they're engaged in their high school years. And the more they're engaged, the more they're going to graduate. And that's really the point of this bill. I think it's going to be a good thing in the long run, but I think we have some work to do in the next two years to make it effective for all high schools statewide. I totally agree. And I think a lot of good conversations are coming out of this. We're learning a lot about what districts are doing and what that looks like as they meet their own district's unique needs. And I think at the most simplistic level, this kind of opens up that pathway, even for educators. So if there's something that an educator is passionate about teaching, but hasn't been able to under the current framework, I think it opens that door to kind of expand the things that count for credit and also make this learning experiences more individualized. And so we were hearing, and I can't remember which committee when they were talking about this bill, but we were hearing some of the ideas that were floating around about robotics and FFA and how we can use a math credit for a science credit and vice versa. And I think like it's allowing people to be more innovative as they're talking about what high school really looks like. And I know for me, I mean, this was, you know, quite a few years ago, but the minute I hit those requirements, there was not anything I was interested in. So I just stopped going. And I'm, I think that we're kind of eliminating that as an option for our current high school students because we're opening the door to their own interests and their own passions. And also this ties into the idea that not everyone goes to college and that's okay, but there are things that we can do in our high schools that help them have a pathway to a successful, fulfilling, enriching career too. Well, and that's the capstone piece of the high school bill, too. I think the PED, Albuquerque Teachers Federation with APS, we've all been working on capstones as a great way to team together, to have cross-content courses, and to really engage students in projects and deeper learning. And I'm very hopeful that we can expand that for high school kids, because I think the days of sit and get kind of learning is over. Our 
kids walk, they vote with their feet. And I think once we engage the intelligence and the creativity of our educators in creating more student-centered learning at the high school level, I think everybody's going to be happier. It's an evolution that has a good ending. Exactly. What I think about just myself personally as an adult in the workforce I engage in my work and I'm happy about my work when I'm doing things that I love and I feel good about and I feel successful at. And our students are the same way. They're not going to want to come to school if they're stuck doing things that aren't interesting or that they feel like they're not attainable. And so I view it as we're broadening that and we're allowing them to engage in learning that means something. I agree. I want to, before we let you leave this segment of the podcast, I want to get to a couple more things. One, I want to talk about what public employees can see for raises next year. And then I want to talk about all the other employees that you represent besides the K-12 licensed educators. So back to the raises. I am so grateful to see, one, that raises are included because sometimes they're not. And two, that they're equitable for all roles groups with an average of 5%, which I think is what we're going to see at the end of the session. So no more teachers get more than anybody else and everybody else is left behind. I think our messaging that we need to make sure we pay attention to everybody as equal is starting to take hold. But I think that there's more on the horizon for educational assistance. And I think John and Whitney, you can talk more about that. Yes. So I'm going to let John do a little bit of talking about that just because he was hands-on, got this to this point. But I will say too, with the raises, the average part is so important because like I said, as a local leader, I wanted as much autonomy and flexibility as possible. And so what that signals to me is I could then go to my school board or my bargaining team and there's flexibility there. So if we decide as a collective, we want to target groups and give them a little bit more because they got less last year, that is an option. And so the average part is key here. And I think on the on the educational assistant front, the bill in particular that we're talking about is House Bill 127. And as we know, last legislative session, we were able to secure significant increases to the three-tier minimums for teachers and folks that exist on that tier system. And then this year was really sort of the year of our educational assistance. And, you know, Ellen, I think you mentioned just a bit ago about the sort of pockets of raises that have been provided in the past, and it was sometimes not particularly equitable. And this year, we really tried to focus heavily on our educational assistance because in state statute, their minimum salary on the books right now is $12,000. And so our bargaining and certainly state minimum wages have eclipsed that minimum, but it was shocking to legislators because they think there's an assumption about what people in schools earn. And so House Bill 127, was endorsed by the Legislative Education Study Committee and was carried by a bipartisan pair of legislators, Susan Herrera, who is a Democrat from northern New Mexico, represents Rio Riba and Taos counties, and a Republican, Brian Baca, who is a school principal in the Los Lunas district in in Valencia County. They work together to to carry this legislation. And, you know, Whitney's right. We're we're particularly proud of of securing the money to to implement this new minimum of $25,000 for educational assistance in the budget because it wasn't in the governor's budget and it wasn't in the LFC budget. And so it's really, really challenging given New Mexico's budgetary process to get a substantial amount of money put into the budget 
after it's largely been been baked by by folks during the interim. And so we're really excited about that. That bill is traveling along with House Bill 2, the the fiscal year 24 budget, and House Bill 127 is going to be heard tomorrow morning in Senate education. But the second that that bill became funded in the budget, you know, unanimous support for that legislation in every committee. So I really think that this year people are starting to realize that there are incredibly important roles that EAs, health assistants, folks that carry that licensure, those those functions they perform in schools are valuable. And I think the best quote around this effort has been from Representative Willie Madrid, who was an instructional assistant himself when he was in the classroom, to say they're the glue that holds everything together. And so they're getting their due in attention and in this increased salary. And there's already talk about sort of, you know, how do we improve this minimum in the future for both EAs, that role group, and then other workers in, in K-12 setting that, that aren't yet at that minimum. Hopefully we can piggyback on this for secretaries, for custodians, for all of our classified staff, our bus drivers, because really we're setting a precedent that we can no longer ignore the rest of the employees that make public school possible. Exactly. And I th- we've already, so we use a lot of these bills as a temperature check. What is the feedback we get? How do we need to retool our strategy? And so we're using this bill and the engagement around it as a temperature check for next session for sure. And so John and I are a really good balance because I am a tried and true elementary teacher who runs on like feelings and emotions. And so one of the most beautiful things about this particular piece of legislation is the stories we hear. So every time it goes through a committee afterwards, someone, and this is across the aisle, I mean, both sides will come and tell us a story about how their child had an EA or there's someone in their family is an EA. And it's just hearing these stories and realizing the impact that this role group has. And yet we're squabbling over $25,000. Like it, there's this disconnect. And I think we're really seeing in real time, people get it. So like a representative told us this story about the, the EA, the one-on-one that their son had was part of the reason they were successful and stayed in school. And like seeing that light bulb, light bulb come on that this individual was single-handedly responsible for keeping their child in school, yet made under $20,000. And so like we're connecting those dots and we're seeing that happen. And it's been really, I mean, rewarding to hear these stories and know that the impact that these people have. Talk a little bit, because as a state union, you represent all educational employees, including higher ed. So talk a little bit about what's going on in higher ed and the kinds of movement that you have on behalf of these employees. Absolutely. So we represent higher ed. We have adjunct and full-time faculty and contingent faculty. And I, when I took over in this role, I tried to do an inventory and have an honest conversation about what pockets of educators and constituency groups needed a little more attention and higher ed immediately jumped out at me. So what we did is we formed a working group and that has representatives from each of the universities that are under the AFT New Mexico umbrella and also CNM who in the past was a part of AFT and isn't in this moment. And through that, we had honest conversations about needs and did kind of an assessment about what could be a legislative fix and what are things that need to happen through bargaining or at the local level. And through that emerged kind of three different pieces of adjunct and higher ed legislation. So we have an adjunct minimum wage bill, which is similar to the three-tiered system we see in the K-12 teacher world. 
We also have one that was a public service loan forgiveness multiplier. And so what, how that works, and I'll let John kind of explain a little bit because he gets the nuances of it way more than I do, is just kind of leveling the playing field and allowing out adjunct faculty to have access to public service loan forgiveness at a quicker rate. And then the other piece is expanding access to unemployment benefits. So as the law is written right now, if you are an adjunct who is assured, promised, receives a contract for a class, and then that class is unexpectedly canceled, they do not have access to unemployment benefits. And so we're really trying to chip away at that and give them that kind of financial security that they deserve. I have to give AFT New Mexico kudos on that because as uh, we've been able to organize higher ed more, it seems like the voice is really resonating in the legislature this year. It's that organized voice that's helping a lot of this along. Thank you. And we're trying to be really mindful. I mean, I, I believe my philosophy is the best work is done in the coalition setting. And so while John and I are effective and impactful, having higher ed members tell their stories, show up, beat the drum on these issues is the most powerful tool we've got. I agree with that uh, sentiment about the coalitional work. And, and I think touching on what Dwayne mentioned, as we have organized larger and more diverse segments of the higher education educator population, we're beginning to see more traction and attention around higher ed. And one of the other bills that is not one that we're necessarily pushing, but we are supportive of it is House Bill 216, which is a bill that would bring more engagement with higher ed policy and higher ed institutions and the higher education department under the auspices of the Legislative Education Study Committee, much like is done with K-12. And so this bill is really important because higher education doesn't really have a home in the current legislative structure. And so we we find that those decisions are much more isolated and there's not as much public discussion and study around those policies around budgetary matters around aligning you know the the higher education needs with what supports our k-12 settings and so you know that's a bill that has strong bipartisan support as well it's making its way through the legislature so we're hopeful that as we do more work in the higher education space we're going to see more pieces of legislation where we can achieve better salaries for for our higher education folks and and better decision making processes for you know those decisions in the colleges of ed space and other that eventually trickle down into our K twelve schools. So we're we're hopeful that that bill gets through so that there's much more sunshine put on to to those decisions. Um, Something John and I, you'll hear us say a lot is the work that we do is intersectional. And so we, and the really concrete example of that is one of our higher ed members was recently telling us about the, around the adjunct minimum wage topic, that her job is educating future educators, yet she makes significantly less than they do. And so looking at how all of these paths of work are all interconnected and our higher ed people are teaching our future teachers, and it's it's fascinating and it's frustrating and it really exposes these pockets of issues that need time and attention. Well, speaking of issues, talk about HB 245. So one of the things that that Whitney and I try to do is attend the annual National Conference of State Legislature. And that's a that's a bipartisan working group that that legislators from across the country will attend. And it really is a week of seminars and lectures and real life stories of what 
other states are doing on any amount of topics, but there's always an education track. This is the group that a No Time to Lose report came out of, which has been really foundational for the work in New Mexico and of our of our parent union, AFT. And so last year, NCSL was held in Denver, and our um, director of research at the national level, Ed Muir, approached Whitney and I and said, hey, <laughs> and anytime Ed approaches you in that way, he's got something, he, he's got a great sense of humor. So, you know, something good is coming. And he says, what, what about this? Book? I will say, I adore the research department. I will do whatever they ask of me, whenever they could call me right now on 17 days left of the session and ask us to do something. And I'd be like, well, all right. <laughs> so that context is important. It's just a, it's just a solid department that has always been supportive of this union. And what Ed asked us to consider having introduced was a bill that would ban captive audience meetings. And so as we see younger workers organize in a level that I'm personally jealous of for other age groups and in industries that have been traditionally resistant to organizing, so heavy on retail, heavy on service work, what is being used is age-old union-busting tactic of a captive audience meeting. And so in a nutshell, it's a meeting that management can force you to attend through threat of punishment or dismissal from your job. And so we've seen a lot of stories in the news around Starbucks in particular, but this has happened at Home Depot, Trader Joe's, REI, Chipotle, any of these kind of nationwide mega chains of, of stores. And this would be a bill that would say an employee has a right to say, I choose not to attend that meeting. And they will not be in fear of losing their job because the law would protect them from that. It doesn't prevent the manager or the company from holding a meeting, but it would protect the worker from refusal to attend. And so the way the bill is currently drafted, it would cover political speech, which would include sort of coercion against joining a union or forming a union. It would prevent a captive audience meeting for the purposes of an electoral campaign. And so we were asked, we were getting this bill developed. It's been modeled after two other states, Oregon and Connecticut, and both of those bills have passed muster with sort of the, does this infringe on First Amendment rights? And you know, what about the poor, you know, giant international company, you know, their rights getting preserved. And so both of these bills uh, in, in Oregon and Connecticut have, have passed legal muster. And so we modeled our legislation off Connecticut. And lo and behold, we found out that, that the Teamsters in New Mexico, which the, the Teamsters who represent your staff, um, Ellen, they were involved in also having a bill drafted because they had a situation during the last campaign where they had members who were forced to be in a photo op with, with a gubernatorial candidate, one that the Teamsters had not endorsed. And so there are real life examples in New Mexico around captive audience meetings. And before, you know, organizing retail spaces like Starbucks or Home Depot really pick up here. We wanted to try to get this law on the books so that these workers have as many protections as possible. And I think this is a great example of just how the labor community in New Mexico fights for all workers. And so this isn't something that necessarily will impact our members on day one, but it is something that hopefully will cre create and foster 
a more fertile territory for future organizing in our state. Public education and workers' rights, they cannot be separated. So thank you, John Dirch, our state affiliate political officer, and of course, our president, state president from AFT New Mexico, Whitney Holland, for joining us. And uh, we'll stay tuned in to what's going on up there in um, Santa Fe. And we're anxiously awaiting your legislative recap emails that we get. Well, thank you. Thank you for having us and for letting us carry on and on about a topic that we feel very passionately about. Yeah, thank you very much. And you'll get another update tomorrow. Well, that's all the time we have on this episode one of our uh, Radio ATF podcast. We would love to hear from members. We want your questions, your comments, your ideas. Maybe you even want to pitch us a story to work on on here. You can send that to act at atfunion.org. That's A-C-T at atfunion.org. And um, make sure you put in the subject line podcast. Ellen, thanks a lot for uh, walking us through a lot of this today. And it's really exciting that we're getting this done. This is wonderful. I'm so excited about Radio ATF, Sounds of Solidarity. I hope you enjoyed the show and I look forward to our next one. I'm on the side of poor people getting organized. I'm on the side of choice where it is in short supply. I'm on the side of those the system doesn't authorize. LGBT, we are on the side of pride, justice and equality. Egypt and Wisconsin when they march against the policy. If you bring the down a king, I'm on your side probably. Kids are giving me shit for this, it really doesn't bother me. They were not around but we were wrestling with poverty So I follow mine and ask no one to follow me Use your own mind, use your heart and your anger Check yourself because apathy is a cancer And let your action be the answer Which side are you on?